Uh, sorry, I'm I'm saying R a lot, aren't I? So. No, no, no. That's that's we like I say, we both do it, and that was a very distinct R that last one. So that's no problem at all. We have a lot to talk about today. We do. Let's see. I'm sitting on my new chair, so that's one thing to talk about. It's exciting. I have in front of me a new PC. Ooh. I also just this afternoon mm. took delivery of 51 boxes of nostalgia from our previous life in Japan. Oh. Well, your stuff is all finally there. It's all here, and I have uh, spent the afternoon entertaining children at the same time as trying to get some of these things unpacked. I am actually literally surrounded by cardboard, packing paper, and plastic bubble wrap. <laughs> like, we have a mountain of packing paper, like sort of butcher's paper, the thin paper that removalists use to uh, right. pad items, that's actually as tall as I am. <laughs> that's just paper. So it is, uh, it's like a forest. It's amazing. Where to begin? Well, I think we should probably begin with follow-up because that's the way that we do things around here. Okay. And, and we've had a lot of it. We've had quite a lot of good feedback, both on the shiny new Reddit that we introduced last episode. Yes. And also on the Twitter, we had a listener, Neil, who is our first medical professional listening to the podcast i think unless does your dad listen uh he has listened to a few episodes but i don't think he's a regular i see okay well neil's been listening and uh, i think he's been going back through the old episodes because he he wrote in to talk about something we said a, a few episodes ago when we were talking about that chair that is now finally arrived that you are no doubt sitting on now yes about seat bones when he gave the name for them right in the trade do you want to have a go? Is Ischial tuberosity? No, no. Ischial tuberosities. Oh, there you go. The, there you go. Very eloquent. From the from the uh, Greek, interestingly, I think it's iskos. Right. Iskos is uh, hip. It's originally hip joint, actually, ah. in Greek. But I guess that whole region has kind of taken on that name in in sort of modern medical. Nomenclature. So that was all very interesting. I don't know what tuberosity means, but could you just could you just say it for me one more time? Well, I, so I I may be wrong, but my attempt at reading it as I haven't looked this up. It's just from what he sent us is ischial tuberosities. Ischial tuberosities. Right, which I presume is a plural. I presume you know one tuberosity, many tuberosities, probably two. Right, <laughs> but uh, I don't really know. It's. Uh... No doubt the name of some high school band somewhere in the world. If it's not now, it bloody ought to be. <laughs> Ischial tuberosities. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. That word is actually going to come in very handy when I get around to talking about this seat that I'm sitting on at the moment. But before that, how are we going with this flaming but friendly war that we have incited between <laughs> Norway and Sweden? Norway versus Sweden. I'm sure everyone is on the edge of their brand new seats waiting to hear about this. I don't know if you've noticed, I've been tweeting updates every now and then over the course of the last couple of weeks. One thing we forgot to specify last time is by what metric we were going to measure this, because there are two possibilities. There is the total number of listeners of downloads of the podcast since the last episode went out. Right. Or there is the total number of downloads of the last episode specifically. Because those are slightly different things. One person may well download three episodes, for example. Right. Uh, so 
that's a sort of interesting distinction. As it happens, I have pulled up the data for both of these things, and the results are fairly similar. So whichever we go with, it's not going to make too much of a difference. But I can tell you that Sweden has defeated Norway on this occasion. Sweden is, let's go with the overall podcast downloads. Sweden is at 8% of all downloads right. over the past week and a half. So it has blown Norway away. But that's not all. Uh-oh. Because I was obviously, I spent the week supporting Norway and, and pushing them to, to keep trying despite Sweden's steaming ahead. And at one point, I even made a tweet to the effect that Denmark is lagging behind as per usual. Right. Well, at the last minute, Denmark came in just a few days before the end with a few downloads and overtook Norway. Really? So Denmark is ahead of Norway. But that's not all. Because just as I thought Denmark was going to take second place, a new contender entered the ring. Let me guess. It's Finland. No. <laughs> no, it's not. Is it, is it Sri Lanka? It's Iceland. Iceland, yes. Iceland came in, stormed ahead of Denmark for 6% of total downloads, putting it just not far below Sweden with, with 8%. That is incredible. So Iceland, Iceland came out of nowhere and has taken a substantial proportion of the downloads. And in fact, we also got a, a comment on our last episode on the Reddit from an Icelandic listener. Fantastic. Or at least an English listener, but he lives in Iceland. So an Icelandic listener. Fantastic. <laughs> and his comment was, in before Norway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm um, somewhat disappointed in our Norwegian, Norwegian friends uh, with that poor showing, but uh, very impressed with Denmark and Iceland. I mean, that, that's a, what an amazing way to make an entry. What a result, I know. Now, another interesting thing about this Denmark result is that if we compare the downloads just for last episode, Denmark doesn't feature at all. Right. In just the last episode, Sweden took 7%. Iceland is still second with 3%, and Norway is on 2%. Right. So Denmark doesn't feature. And that means that Denmark got up to 3% of total downloads without having listened to the call to arms that we made last episode. Those are natural downloads. Those aren't sort of extra downloads that they're making to try and beat Sweden. How did that happen? Well, somebody from Denmark must have just stumbled across the pot. Or, or you know, the same, the same people who were drawing with Sri Lanka last time right. must have decided to download some more episodes. Maybe they finished listening to the first couple of episodes and decided, you know, they might be listening to them in order. I see. So for whatever reason, you know, there, there were downloads from Denmark. Those downloads were not of the last episode, which means that Denmark is doing quite well, despite not knowing there's a competition even going on. So that means that uh, this next episode, episode 11, so first, all the Danes listening, you must go back and listen to episode 10. <laughs> and uh, that means then that if, yeah, if they, once they come to episode 11 and they hear this. Well, just imagine what they could do. That's right. I mean, if they're not even trying and they, they make such a good showing, then what happens right. when they try? Right. Yeah. So, so excellent work. All round, Sweden, well done. You, you maintained your pole position. But Iceland, supreme work, steaming in just below Sweden. I think actually immediate, immediately below Sweden, the next. There, obviously, above Sweden is the UK and the United States and, and Australia and, and Japan, which we've kind of taken for granted. Right. But immediately below Sweden is Iceland. So good work. Mm. 
And the Netherlands come after that. They are obviously not part of the Nordic set, but they're still uh, making a strong showing. So right. good work all round. Well done, everybody. No progress for Finland? No progress for Finland. We have yet to have a single Finnish download in our history. Really? We did get some new countries this time. We had some downloads from Ukraine, right? which we had not... When we last recorded, we had not had any downloads from Ukraine, but we've had some from there. Mm. And we we got contacted by a Thai listener. Yeah, I was just about to mention that, actually. Right, yeah. Well, do you want to? Yes, yeah, actually, uh, we must send out a special hello to uh, listener 9699bird, who is uh, a Thai listener. This I was actually very um, kind of uh, humbled and, and very happy and flattered also that this Thai listener actually uh, uses Station 13 as an English resource for learning the English language. Mm. And uh, he or she wrote an extremely eloquent, extremely extremely um, grammatically correct, uh, more or less native speaker uh, post to us uh, on our Station 13 Reddit, uh, subreddit, apologizing for his or her poor English, which of course was completely unjustified because this is fantastic English. But actually, I had never really thought of it, but um, Station 13, it would make a, a very good resource for language learning, I guess, wouldn't it? I think these this genre of what Hello Internet has dubbed the Two Dudes Talking podcast is good for, for language learning because you get, you get a, a sense of real conversation. You know, it's not scripted. It's more or less the way people actually speak. And in fact, one thing that I had intended to bring up last time, but I didn't, when we were talking about learning Japanese and, and listening to lots of Japanese content and cutting out English language content. If that's a thing you're doing, I can recommend the Rebuild.fm podcast, which is the best Japanese language podcast that I've encountered. Mm. And it's a similar sort of style to this. It's very conversational. It's much more technical. It's quite similar to the talk show, which is John Gruber's podcast that he runs as that he calls the, the director's cut of daring fireball right but it's you know there's one guy who is the host who interviews a different person each time and obviously the same people do come on every now and then but he's talking to different people each time and depending on who he's talking to and what's just happened that the topics will be different but they're generally quite technical he quite often gets programmers on there and they'll talk about programming related subjects right or when one of the big technology companies has just had some big keynote or announcement or something they'll have an episode about that right and it's the production quality is very good the conversation is very relaxed and enjoyable to listen to so if you're learning japanese i can definitely recommend rebuild fm and i'll put a link in the in the show notes to that great if you're learning english uh, stay where you are (laughs) (laughs) uh yes so anyway, thank you. Um, uh, this specific Thai listener mentioned that uh, because of the language barrier, he or she doubts that we would actually have many Thai listeners uh, listening in from Thailand. This listener is actually currently located in the United States. But uh, anyway, I'm just very, very happy. You know, fantastic. And I'm yeah. glad that we can be of... Welcome all listeners. Yeah. All nationalities, wherever they may be. English listeners in Iceland, Thai listeners in America. Yes. It's a beautiful uh, cornucopia. Is that the right word? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Lots of fruit coming out of a horn. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I, need to, um, I need to tell you about my seat, Danny. Go on then. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay. Well, 
I had uh, mentioned to you before that I was a little bit worried about whether the seat pan was going to be soft enough. Yes, for your uh, for your ischial tuberosities. That's right, for my ischial tuberosities. So let me just start by saying that this is a Haag Horg, uh, as it would be pronounced, Capisco Pulse. It's their new model. It looks absolutely fantastic. Like just just to look at it, it really is a work of art. I mean, it looks. It's a beautiful looking chair, and especially that color combination you got, which is the white plastic with the black cushion and the black legs and so forth. That is exactly the color combination that I was going to go for as well. I think that looks great. Yeah, it it really is a stunning stunning piece of furniture, and you know, my family who are totally disinterested in any of this, they all just laughed when they saw it because it really is a striking striking piece of industrial design Mm. and one of the great things about such a striking piece of industrial design is when you sit on it you know you look at it and you think that's got to be uncomfortable and when you sit on it you realize what wow wow it's actually really very comfortable the other thing is it's made in norway yeah come on norway you make good chairs you know you need something to listen to while you're putting together these chairs i can recommend station 13 yeah that's the thing actually if anybody working in the Horg factory (laughs) is listening to the podcast right into the Reddit. Right. (laughs) As far as the construction, it is by far the most well-made chair that I've sat on. Just in terms of the tolerances, nothing creaks. There's no give anywhere. You know, even the the famed Herman Miller Aeron chairs that we enjoyed in our company that we worked at together in Japan, right. you know, they, they are fantastically comfortable, but when they get very old, they kind of creak and, you know, the, everything, you know, if you sort of rock back and forth, there's a little bit of give in everything as if the joints have become a bit loose. Right. There's none of that. Like, it's totally solid. Well, it's not old yet. Though. True, true, but <laughs> that that's true. But, you know, it you can actually feel, for example, the seat pan can be shifted forwards and backwards. Mm. And you can, when you lift the lever, you can feel... With the lever, you can feel the the grooves in the the ratchet mechanism that that uh, allows it to be locked into a certain place, right. and they're really tight. Mm-hmm. Like when it, when the lever f- slips back into those grooves, you can feel that the the tolerances are, are made extremely well, so that there's just no give there at all. All of these small indications of quality kind of come together to f- produce this this overall feeling of just really high quality construction and design. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. the things that I like about it are exactly the things that I thought I would like about it. The seat back is honestly, Danny, it is a work of genius. Like the shape of the seat back is absolutely incredible. Mm. The arms, the way that they kind of stick out, for those who haven't seen it, it's basically like a, a T shape on the back. So the idea of that is that uh, you can lean back and li- lift your elbows up onto these little armrests that actually sit behind you. Right. So I wanted this specifically because I wanted to be playing instruments on it and I need to shift around a lot to operate different pieces of gear that I have here. And so in that regard, just how it, the back feels and you turn around and all, but it's like whenever I just feel like putting my arm up on something, it, it's just right there and it's it's absolute genius. It's perfect. So do you do that? Do you find you do that like in real life? Do you hook your arms? Because you can, you've got a couple of things you can do, can't you? You can hook your arms up and back with your elbows sort of on it and your arms sticking out forward. Yeah. Or you can bring your arms all the way around and dangle them over the back. Yeah. Which I imagine would also uh, work. Do you Do you find yourself in those positions like do you make use of that t shape to do that i actually do because uh i have now in front of me a pc in front of me and i have on 
my left side, I have a MacBook Pro, right. which I'm using using to talk to you right now. And on my right side, I have uh, a rack with four synthesizers in it. Mm. So rather than swiveling the chair, I just swivel myself on top of the chair. Right. And then I'm sitting in the sideways position. And then it's the perfect little armrest to sort of rest on there while I'm using the Mac or on the other side, rest on it while I uh, am using my um, right hand to fiddle with the uh, controls on the synthesizers. Mm. It's just absolutely perfect, as as I thought it would be. I just, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about the back design. The foot plates are fantastic. So basically, if you look down, there are on the edge above where the wheels are, there are these nicely formed grooves where you can actually lift your feet up on and, and um, rest your legs on there, right. or rest your feet on there. And I tend to always have sat like that on other chairs where you just sort of have your feet up on top of where the wheels are. Right. But it's never really been a comfortable thing because they're usually sort of rounded. Mm. The idea, of course, is that, you know, if you accidentally hit your foot on it, it's not going to hurt so much if it's rounded. These are also rounded, but the tops of them are flattened out with some grooves on there so that you can place your feet on top of them. Right. And it's extremely comfortable. It just makes so much sense. And that's distinct from the option because they also offer an option for an actual ring that fits onto the main stem of the chair, right? That you More when you're using it as kind of a half-standing chair. Yeah, that's right. Now, the part that I'm not so happy with is, indeed, as I expected, the seat pan does get a little tiring after several hours. Right. Now, probably one of our Horg uh, listeners in Norway, one of our many Horg uh, listeners in, in Norway right now is probably listening to this <laughs> and saying, well... You know, that's perhaps not not a fair criticism because it's not supposed to be a seat that you sit in for several hours. Right. It's supposed to be a work chair, which you sort of get up and get down and move around in. And Right. The idea is that it's very dynamic and you can move from sitting to standing very easily. Right. And the whole point of it, unlike the Aeron chairs, which basically make this really comfortable reclining position that you don't feel like you want to get out of. Right. The point of the Capisco Pulse is that it's unhealthy for the human body to remain stationary, so uh, it encourages you to move around. I am finding that the seat pan is a little bit uncomfortable, so that the design of it is perfect. So the the padded part of it is right in the middle, which uh, ha- happens to be where your uh, ischial tuberosities... Yeah. Did I, I get it right? Tu- tu- uh, yeah, and ischial tuberosities. Yeah, uh, I almost said geocities there, which was... Uh, <laughs> ischial... <laughs> Ischial geocities. Yeah, that's where they haven't they stick down. So the design of it is perfect. And if you sit on it for a short the, the instant that you sit down, you think, oh, this is quite comfortable. But I have found that uh, after several hours, it gets quite hard on on your bottom. Mm. Uh, so I'm now actually considering purchasing the uh, additional upholstered seat cushion, which you can actually attach onto the oh, onto I the see. seat. Okay. The way that the seat is designed, I've, I figured out why it, it is such a great design. Mm. Basically, because the underneath your thighs, it slopes off very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, it is kind of like sitting on a really, really big old style bicycle seat. You know, one of those really huge bicycle seats that you often see on, right, right. on older bicycles. Um, because of that, it actually forces you to sit further back in the seat, which moves the center of gravity from your thighs to your hips. Hmm. And I realized that on other seats that I've sat on, I always find myself leaning forward in the end. Hmm. And the reason for that is just that uh, because your the weight of your body is supported on top of your thighs, 
not on top of your hips. Right. And so the center of gravity becomes further forward, which means you kind of feel like you want to lean forward to get your, your head over the top of the center of gravity. This chair, because your thighs don't really come in contact with anything, you tend to sit with your hips pushed right back. And that means that your center of gravity is on top of your hips instead of on top of your thighs, which means that you actually find yourself leaning back instead of leaning forward. Hmm. That's interesting because I I almost had the opposite like or the opposite assumption in that you know we were saying that the the air on chairs encourage you to sit back and I had felt like this sloping downwards would sort of shift your weight forwards so right. that you would you would end up leaning forwards but you're almost saying the opposite is true yeah the thing is that um I think as far as uh, uh, ergonomics are concerned having an open angle between your upper body and lower body is generally considered ideal. Right. Which means that leaning leaning forward closes up that angle and you get less circulation between your upper right, body and your I legs. See. So rather than have your legs tilted upwards and your torso tilted forward, which results in a very acute angle, the capisco encourages you to have your legs leaning downwards and then your torso more or less erect. Exactly. Which results in, in a much more open angle. Exactly. And mm. uh, here's, here's what I actually found. I spent about an hour, I think it was, leaning forward over my Mac to do some documents. Mm. And I actually kind of cramped up my, <laughs> cramped up my, my neck and my shoulders doing that. Mm. And I've realized that the trick to sitting on the Capisco is to actually sit properly, to sit leaning back. And use make use of this fantastic seat back. Right. So if I if I sit right back and I pull the seat right up to the table, so the table is is pressed up against my uh, abdomen, it's fantastic. And you can sit that way. You, you know, I mean, eventually your your butt becomes a little bit sore, but you can sit that way for quite a long time. And your upper body is completely open. You have no back pain. Your shoulders and your neck are very relaxed. Mm. So I can see that the whole point of this was people who have back pain, yeah. people who have um, tight shoulders or who tend to sit leaning forward, this chair solves all of those problems in a really fantastic way. So right. if you sit on it naturally, leaning back, pulled right up to the table and yeah, with your legs kind of uh, sloped down, you are actually supported very nicely and it's, it's actually very comfortable. As I said, the only thing that I'm not so pleased with, I think, is just that the, the seat pan is just a little hard after after several hours. So, yeah, so I, I'm now considering purchasing the, the seat pad. Probably it'll take a few weeks to arrive, so mm. uh, I still have a few more weeks to get used to it. I think that uh, many reviews online about the Capisco Pulse say that it does take a week or two to get used to. And mm. uh, I think that because I've been so used to sitting on a chair leaning forward, now I'm leaning back, which is great for my back, but it means that I'm not used to having the weight down on my hips. I'm much much more used to having the weight onto my thighs. Right. And having the weight onto your hips means that your uh, ischial tuberosities have more weight on them. Mm -hmm. This chair is designed so that the pad is underneath that so that it absorbs that weight. But uh, right. yeah, as right now, I'm just finding that uh, after several hours, it, yeah, it is it is a little bit tiring on the bottom. So right. well, we'll see how it goes when you get the pad, I suppose. Yeah, I think that um, that's really the only aspect of this chair which I'm not finding comfortable is just under your bottom after an extended period of time. So I think probably once the pad comes, uh, it will solve all of that and... Uh, 
I shall report again. But uh, so far, so far, so pretty good. Great. As I said, the design is is fantastic, and the everything that I thought would be good about it has turned out to be great. So I'm definitely happy with my purchase. Good, great success. The other thing that has happened in my room recently is uh, a PC. Do you have a Windows computer that you use regularly? I don't. I um, currently Mac only. Right. I've used them for work. We had to use them for work in because the Nintendo console, I don't know if this is still true with the Switch, but certainly the older Nintendo consoles, the Wii and the 3DS and so forth, only supported Windows for development, mm. so we didn't have the option. Right. Yeah, The um, this is actually the first time that I've had Windows 10 at home. Mm. It's pretty good. It makes a lot of sense, unlike a lot of previous versions of Windows. <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of things, as far as its functionality goes, just you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's quite good. I must say, I have to say that um, with a Mac next to a PC, mm. the font rendering is just ridiculously bad. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps it's the other way around. It's just ridiculously good on uh, a Mac with a Retina display. I mean, the, yeah, the pr- priorities are different, I think, and the approach is different, but the Mac has always been very particular about typography. You know, Steve Jobs famously, I think, took a course in typesetting or typography or something when he was at university. So Right. So switching between them when you're using them, that, that's a bit of a, it's a bit jarring. I think if I only had Windows here, then it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't bother me so much. But uh, yeah, it definitely, when you, when you just look over the Mac and the fonts, it's basically like looking at the looking at a printed page. Right. It, it's uh, quite a big difference. Are you, speaking of typography, Danny, are you do you have any interest in typography? Yes, of course. As well, you know. <laughs> uh, yes, I I do. I am. Uh, in fact, I purchased a typeface recently. Oh, really? You, I haven't told you this. No. Yeah. Typefaces, as you know, and as anyone who has ever looked into them knows, are extremely expensive. Mm digital items to buy they're usually being sold to graphics professionals who are going to use those typefaces to produce some sort of content for which they're going to be paid money so it's not an unreasonable thing Mm. that they should be expensive because they are essentially a professional tool right but i think that the big type foundries are being quite slow to adapt to the the use case of the home amateur user who has no intention of actually producing any content but just wants to use it for their own things right their own whatever they might be doing that they're not actually going to distribute to anyone right so anyway this particular typeface that i bought is called scholar right or scholar i'm not sure how it's supposed to be pronounced it's by the rosetta type foundry uh-huh. and the idea behind it is that it is supposed to be an academic font that crosses a number of different countries writing systems essentially so the 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 scholar pe the pe is pan european mm. and it's supposed to it's, so it can deal with all the diacritics for all your polish and and hungarian and all our scandinavian friends as well who have their share of diacritics it has excellent support for ancient greek which is the reason that i got it mm. And it also supports some Indian scripts. It's got very good Gujarati support. I'm not that familiar with the state of Gujarati fonts in general, but I imagine that they are a bit like Japanese. It can be hard to find a good Japanese font. 
that is not just your typical Mincho or Gothic. Mm. So I got it for the for the Greek. So the reason that I got it is because I do I study ancient Greek on my iPad every morning and I have it it brings up like a flashcard and shows me a Greek sentence and I have to give the meaning or it shows me a Greek verb and I have to conjugate it into some tense. And the default fonts for Greek are okay, but just a little bit, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of them. I think the way they do, particularly the row character mm. is, and, and a couple of the other characters, I just don't think look that nice. And I saw this Scholar font on somebody's website, and it's a really nice looking font. Mm. And they have a one year trial version that you can buy. I see. That lets you use it for personal use for a year. Mm. And I think I think it said educational use for unlimited time. And I can't determine whether mine counts as educational use. Because, I mean, obviously I'm using it just to teach myself Greek. But I'm not associated with any sort of educational institution. So I'm not, I'm not really sure where I stand there. Right. But either way, I thought, you know, it was $20, which is a lot for a year's trial of something, but not a lot for a font. Mm. And I thought, I'll give it a go. I've been considering like toying about with making something to do with Greek, like as an app or something, making my own flashcard app or an app for annotating Greek texts or something like that on the iPad. Right. Uh, as just a, a little hobby project. I'll probably never do it. But if I did do it, I thought this typeface would be a nice... Mm. A nice one to use for it. It's very nice. I'm, I'm just looking at it now. It's very nice. It's an extremely well-balanced mm. typeface. And the other thing is the Latin set and the Greek set, because they're designed together, yeah. they go very nicely together. So where I have some of my cards, for example, that say uh, conjugate the verb whatever into the imperfect indicative passive tense, for example. Right. And obviously the instruction there is in English, but the verb is given in Greek. And it can look quite, it can be quite jarring when the font that is used for those two parts just doesn't match very nicely. Right. So, yeah, so it's, an, it's, it's a nice font. It looks good. The diacritics have got some issues in some apps, which I haven't quite figured out why. Mm. So... That's something. Ancient Greek diacritics seem to cause a lot of fonts and applications using those fonts problems. And I'm not entirely sure where the blame lies. But I think the reason is that in actual Greek texts, they have accents to show the, the pitch of that syllable. But they don't usually have uh, macrons, which is the horizontal line that goes above a vowel to say that it goes above a short vowel to say that it should be long they're used in japanese as well you're familiar with them in japanese right like tokyo right right it's got a horizontal line above the, the o's yeah so ancient greek and latin both use this same system in educational materials so that when you're learning you know that a particular syllable should be long but original texts didn't have that. It was just assumed that you, if you knew the word, you knew how it was pronounced. Right. So, so the way to make a 
<laughs> getting too deeply in the way that Unicode works. Unicode has a couple of different ways to represent accented characters. So, for example, if you think of just a simple E with an acute accent, like you would often get in, say, French, mm. there is a specific Unicode code point representing E with an acute accent. But you can also build up that character by using what's called a combining character. So you can take the normal E character and then have after that a special Unicode combining character which says add an acute accent to the previous letter. Mm. And so Unicode has some ambiguities about something that looks exactly the same to the human eye can be represented in a couple of different ways in the data, which has some interesting ramifications, which we could talk about at length, but let's not. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, if you have a character that has a macron, but that also has an accent, a pitch indicator, or a rough or smooth breathing, breathing indicator, that has not got a specific Unicode character to represent it. So the only way to do that is with combining characters. Mm. So you can take the A with Macron Unicode character, followed by the smooth breathing and acute accent combining diacritic. Mm. And you, you can get the character. But how well the font deals with those combinations can result in some strange looking artifacts. Right. So you should, if you have, for example, a long A, which is at the beginning of a word, has a smooth breathing, which means you just pronounce it as ah and not ha. And it also has an accent. The way that should look is that it should be an alpha letter with a macron above it. And above that, next to each other and in line with each other should be like an apostrophe followed by the accent. And what you often get is because they're using combining characters, they just stack on top of each other. Mm. So you get the macron and then you get the apostrophe thing, which is the breathing. And then sitting on top of that, you get this accent. And so it looks bad. <laughs> okay. Anyway, this typeface it originally had poor support for these combining diacritics. That support has got better. Mm. And in most situations, it looks great. And it's a beautiful typeface. But I have encountered a couple of situations where it looks a bit funny. Mm. And I've actually, I've only encountered one, apart from the default typefaces, which are installed, you know, on my Mac by, by default, which seem to handle everything perfectly. Of the typefaces, the fonts that I've downloaded online, there's one called New Athena Unicode that has excellent support for all these things and I've yet to have it go wrong on anything. Mm. So although the actual design of that typeface is not my favorite, it's not too bad, but it's, you know, it's a slightly funny looking. Its support for Unicode and for all these diacritics is so good that I tend to end up using that. So I'm not sure whether I'll pursue this, you know, this Scholar one that I've bought a year's trial for, I may just leave it after the year is up. I'll have to see how it goes. Yeah, actually, um, just uh, winding back to something you mentioned earlier there, the font market is an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. Something interesting, you know, generally, this is, as far as I know, if we have any people who work in typography, we'd be really interested to hear from you about this. But as far as I know, the 
you know, if for example, if we if we compare it to making games, you know, there's middleware tools, there's all these different tools that we have available in software now that actually makes our job easier, right? Which means that less people can make more. Which, when you translate that into what the you know the the gaming consumer receives on the on, at the end of it all, they can get more of an experience for basically you know a more variety of it because more people can do it because it doesn't take so many people. You don't need hundreds and hundreds of people to make a game anymore. Um, of course, depending on the scale and the type of game that you're making. Now, on the other hand, typography, as far as I know, is something that hasn't really benefited from software that much. As far as I know, typography is still done in fairly traditional ways. You know, it's done by initially, of course, designers discussing and sitting around with sketches of individual letters, which have different components in them that are that are representative of the style of the type of the typeface. Mm. But then it basically becomes using one of a select few dedicated software pack- packages for designing typefaces and then just basically going through letter by letter. So the reason that typefaces are so expensive is because they are incredibly, incredibly complicated to make. It's not just a case of having a baseline and then just drawing a letter on top and making sure that it doesn't go too far up, you know? Right, right. You know, right, right. they are incredibly complicated to make. And you've got to be considering whether they're going to be for print application or if it's going to be for screen display or both. Uh, you've got to be considering, of course, the balance of all of the letters in, in the, uh, the character sets that you're creating. Mm. They have to be properly kerned so that they don't sit too far or too close to each other so that when you you know, where, where you have software that uh, uh, requires that a lot of that data comes out of the font, then it, it needs to look good when it just sits there rather than some letters having unnaturally wide spacing in between them. Right. And this is all b- before you even scratch the surface of this of the massive challenge, the artistic and aesthetic challenge of creating a typeface where everything has to be consistent and everything has to look like it, it's stemmed from the same concept, even though every individual character looks totally unique and you know completely um stands on its own as an interesting abstract shape right uh, it all has to balance out so it's interesting that you know you mentioned there that the the type that the font industry has i think you said that it has not really caught up with the needs of users who don't need fonts that are uh, extremely extremely um you know top grade for graphic designers who are making you know, they're making... Uh... That's, that's not quite the point. I, I'm, I'm not saying that they should have access to lesser, cheaper-to-make fonts. I'm saying that... Firstly, I think what I said is not quite fair because they are actually changing. Mm. And in particular, when it comes to web fonts, yeah. web fonts are a very interesting, relatively new market that changes the way fonts are thought of and delivered in quite a big way. And I do think that foundries uh, seem to be doing a pretty good job of adjusting to that. They will have different licenses for allowing you to use a particular web font on, you know, within a particular domain or to download the font and use it in printed publications or sometimes for personal use. Mm. But yes, fonts are very expensive to make, but I think there is room in the market for having commercial use for a website or for an app or for 
a printed publication or a poster or something like that be priced at the same expensive prices that they have been and websites are actually tend to be a little bit cheaper and still to be able to have individual licenses which you can download and use on your own computer but you can't distribute anything you've made using that font and those could be much cheaper i think you i think you could offer those for much lower prices sub $100 and it would not be unreasonable mm. because more people would buy them and so you know that makes up for the fact that they're so cheap and i don't think they devalue i don't think it devalues the the work that's been put into the typeface because the that old market of using it for commercial purposes still exists mm. i don't think it goes away you know what i mean well the the elephant in the room here of course is google fonts because google fonts uh they used to be a little bit naff. Now there's a huge variety, and so in there, some of them are extremely high quality. Mm. And uh, Google Fonts, obviously, if you're making a website, it's very convenient. It's set up in a way that it's very quick and easy to set up for anybody. You know, you don't need to have a very high level understanding of web programming in order to implement Google Fonts. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the the amount of effort that you need to put into actually in, in integrating it. When you weigh that up with the benefit, you know how how much nicer your website can look with a, a nicely uh, with a nice typeface to it, uh, as opposed to you know Verdana or Georgia or any of those uh, Times New Roman or any of those default courier uh, kind of web fonts. Mm. Just a, a huge huge improvement in how your website can look just with a Google font, which is relatively easy to implement. So the market certainly needs to do something because. <laughs> For sure, you know, graphic designers are going to still need the uh, extremely high quality, I want to say proper typefaces, because I guess they're all proper, but uh, the professional grade, no, that's not even the right term for it, I guess. The boutique, maybe? <laughs> sure. <laughs> boutique typefaces, uh, there's always going to be a need for them. And the amount of work that goes into making them has doesn't seem to be changing. That was my point earlier, that it doesn't seem that uh, unlike in other industries where new tools make the art of doing that easier and requiring less people and less hours, right. at least in the case of uh, typefaces, uh, I'm not seeing that change. It seems to be relatively still a very, very complicated, very, very um, deep art. The design, I mean, the, yeah, there's no, there's no getting around the design side of things. I mean, it's certainly got easier in the digital age yeah. when you compare it with letterpress right. and with actually having to create metal molds mm. of these characters. I wonder if the font market sees free web fonts, such as Google fonts, in a similar way that traditional mechanical watchmakers view smartwatches, just in the sense that it's not competition it's just something different. Right. I mean, yeah, I have not seen any sign that the font foundries are particularly worried about the rise of freely available web fonts because there have always been freely available fonts. I mean, mm. Windows came with, uh, with some and the Mac comes with some and then you'd buy software packages and those include a whole bundle of fonts where, you know, if you buy Photoshop, which is a fairly expensive software package, it's a few hundred dollars, I guess. And now it's a subscription. But 
it comes with some fonts yeah. bundled in. So, so I think the totally these things can uh, live together. But I still disagree somewhat with the thing you keep coming back to of well, we've got these these free web fonts and the normal people can use them for their websites and things, but there'll still be a need for these proper fonts, which is a word you keep sort of trying to find a better word than proper or, or whatever. But what I'm saying is I don't think it should be a separate set of fonts. I think you can you can make the boutique nicely designed fonts still be sellable at an approachable price for personal use. I think you can put it in terms of the license rather than sort of have different fonts at different availability. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's so difficult. I mean, what is personal use? I mean, you know, if you make, if you use a font to make a flyer for your kid's birthday party, is that personal use versus if you, you know, if you work for a graphic design studio and you make somebody's flyer for their kid's birthday party, right? does that make it professional use? I mean, it's, the other thing, of course, about fonts that makes it difficult is that it's just a file. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, unless we get into the, the nasty area of uh, putting some kind of um, copy protection onto these files, right. which is actually interesting because uh, that's what has to happen with Japanese fonts, because the Japanese font industry is, is slightly different, isn't it? Because Japanese fonts are even more complicated they're even more difficult to make because there are so many right. Chinese characters and there's so many, you've got all the Japanese alphabet and you've got to have Roman characters in there as well. Right. That uh, it's an, an even greater investment by the foundries to actually create a new Japanese font. And so right. because of that, especially uh, for use in games, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think that uh, in the West, you know, if you need a font for a game, you have a lot of options. You know, you can go to, you can use... Uh, Creative Commons free fonts, or you can buy a font to use in the game and licenses or whatever. But with the Japanese ones, there's pretty much no way around it. You've got to have a contract with one of the font foundries. Right. And the licensing terms are very well defined and, and quite restrictive. There are a few good free uh, Japanese options, but they're instantly recognizable. You can look at right. anything that's used it and you can go, oh, yeah, that's the M plus rounded font or whatever. Right. Right. So. Uh, so they have all manner of interesting ways to ensure that uh, you are only using their fonts for this particular game product and for nothing else. So, right. you know, that's, I guess, potentially that's one one solution to how you draw the line in the sand between professional use and personal use. I mean, this, this Scholar font that I've just got, it has similar terms mm. if you go if you click through to the buy page you'll see you've got all these different license options and you can choose to buy a license for unlimited use in print media you can buy a license for i think up to three apps mm. so if you want to use it for apps i think the license that you get allows you to use it for up to three apps and then if you want to use it for more apps than that you have to get another license mm. if you want to use it for less apps then tough luck you, you, you buy a license for three apps uh, the web font license lets you use it, I think, within one domain name. Right. So if you if all your sites are hosted within the same domain, then you're okay. But if you've got multiple domain names and you want to use the same fonts, then you've got to buy multiple licenses. Right. And there is a personal license as well. So now this is all. Uh, this does exist. This is all just sort of on a system, right? There's no. They're not enforcing any of that in any way, are they? As far as I understand, yes. 
I I mean I don't I haven't looked into it that closely, but I, I don't think there's any sort of DRM right. on the font. Yeah, because uh, I don't know. I, I still think that um, uh, I mean we we won't go on too much longer with this uh, conversation, but I just think that uh, now with Google fonts, free fonts increasing in their quality, mm. why like how would a, a font foundry justify? having their product available in some form or other for personal use, enforced or not enforced, whatever, you know, how, however that's managed. Sure. You know, how, how could they justify actually offering that tier when, from a consumer's point of view, you know, that Google Fonts is, is growing every day and the quality is very, very good now? Why would you, you know, why would anybody, the, the, the person who needs it for that sort of personal use, why would they bother spending the money, even if it is like forty dollars or twenty dollars or, or whatever? You know, the, when there are free options that are so good now and so much diversity, I can see the point of view from the font foundry. It's like, well, why, why even bother? You know, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I, I suppose that is a, a, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know if they've experimented with it because the the answer is. Well, do you make more or less money? Mm. If by releasing it in this cheaper tier for personal use, they sell lots of that because enough people that decide that it's worth paying $40 when it wouldn't have been worth paying $200, for example. Right. If, the, if they make enough money from doing that for it to be worthwhile, then they'll do it. Mm. And if they don't, then, well, yeah, obviously they shouldn't. And I'm clearly wrong. Mm. <laughs> I'm just not sure whether th this has actually been tried or not. Right. If it's already been tried and turned out to be a failure, then then I will concede defeat. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in the early days when um, uh, there were a few, few other of that kind of font streaming services out there. Mm. Um, and as usual, Google sort of rolls in with its heavy artillery functionality and incredible value in the sense that most, most of it is free mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of disrupts everything very very quickly which of course they did to the uh, search engine market and uh yeah speaking of search engines speaking of which yes so very sudden topic change but i <laughs> i have changed my default search engine in my browsers on both my computer and my iphone and my ipad and all that using alta vista now no uh <laughs> No, I'm, <laughs> I don't. I don't think AltaVista exists anymore. On with GeoCities. No, I've, I've so I've switched to DuckDuckGo, which is probably predictable enough. Right. You are you familiar with DuckDuckGo? I have tried it one or two times. Uh, I didn't really understand. Uh, I, I thought, well, this is nice, but why? Why would how? Tell me, Danny. Tell me everything about DuckDuckGo. Why? Why should I reconsider it? Well, I'm. I'm not necessarily saying that you should. The principal differentiating factor for DuckDuckGo certainly in the years since the Snowden revelations, has been their devotion to privacy. So whereas Google tries to build up a profile of you as the user, and it does this both through you being logged in, so you know, you've got a Google account, which is the same account on YouTube as it is on Google+, Plus. if you're using that, mm. and you can log into the Google search engine using that as well, and it can sort of learn who you are mm. and try and base its search results that it shows you on your profile, right? Right. That's one of its advantages, Google's advantages. 
but it also bases the advertising it shows you on your profile right right and that that is so all encompassing that you know we've talked about this before when we were talking about email you sometimes get this feeling that you're being followed around wherever you go by these similar advertisements because your profile that has been built up right. is what is following you around the way that DuckDuckGo does its advertising is that it bases the adverts that it shows you on your search terms. Okay. So it doesn't actually try and learn anything about you and it doesn't try and track what you're looking at or anything like that. It's old-fashioned, traditional, the way advertising on search engines used to be done mm. in the sort of pre-Google era in a sense. Mm. But it tries to do this while being a reasonably good search engine mm. it also has some other things like the the original reason DuckDuckGo was invented was actually not about privacy but was about trying to give you the answer to your question at the top which google now does as well uh. but i think DuckDuckGo did this first right. where if you put a search term if it reckons from the pages it's found it can actually just tell you the answer without you having to go into any of the pages right it will it will do that uh, in a, in like a snippet at the top. That's nice. And Google does this as well, to be fair. But I think I think it was sort of that was why DuckDuckGo was originally sort of made. But then when all this sort of privacy stuff came about, DuckDuckGo sort of looked at that and said, "Well, hang on a second. As it happens, we don't track anything about users' data. Mm. So you know, and now people are starting to become more aware of this. Mm. You know, this would be a good marketing strategy. And so that is now a big part of." the way that DuckDuckGo markets itself is that it's a search engine that doesn't track you. That's interesting. I use um, the Opera browser. Mm. And <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> I, uh, I used to be... A, Me neither. <laughs> I, uh, I used to be... A, let's see, I, I started with... Okay, it was uh, Mosaic. Sure. Then Netscape. Navigator mm -hmm. was was it the other way around. No, I think that's the right way around. No, it's Mosaic first, and then Netscape. Right. At least that's when they came out. Right. And then uh, then Firebird, which became Firefox, mm -hmm. and used Firefox for a very very long time. Then not really happy to use um, Google Chrome when that became more popular. Mm. I was using Chromium, which was it's like the open source mm -hmm. thing that uh, Google Chrome is based on, for also quite a long time. And then back to Firefox again for quite a long time. And about two years ago, I think it was, I uh, noticed that Opera had changed from its Presto rendering engine to WebKit. And I thought, oh, okay, well, might as well give that a go. Mm. And uh, I've been stuck on Opera ever since, and I don't really know why. However, the point, the reason that I bring this up is that Opera often does things that are uh, a little bit unusual and a little bit um, revolutionary, perhaps, or d disruptive. Mm -hmm. Did you know that Opera actually was the first browser to incorporate CSS style sheets? Yeah, I didn't know that. Maybe the, if you actually look on Wikipedia, there's a little, I think there's a section there on the, uh, or somewhere on the internet, you'll find there is a list of the innovations that Opera actually uh, is responsible for. One of them is CSS. The other one is tabbed browsing. Right, yeah. Uh, Opera, Opera was the first browser to do that. Anyway, um, the whole reason that I'm bringing all this up is that Opera now comes out of the box built in with an ad blocker. Right. And it's it's very effective. There's <laughs> a little kind of shield up in the address bar that shows you a number when you go to a website, and that's the amount of ads that have been blocked. Mm. And 
therefore, because of that, I tend not to really think about ads and uh, the fact that, you know, my Google search terms are being tracked. When I used to see ads, call me unusual. Go on. Call me unusual. Oh, okay. Unusual. <laughs> Thank you. Call me unusual. But uh, I actually sometimes appreciate ads that are targeted to the things that I like and the things that I'm interested in. Right. And that is that is absolutely a fine choice. That is something that I want to sort of actually make clear is because we've had two topics now where we open this podcast with my switching from Gmail to Fastmail. And now I'm switching my search from Google to DuckDuckGo. And you might think that I'm some kind of anti-Google zealot. And I am absolutely not that. I think Google's a really interesting company. They're doing really interesting work. And I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong about them building up a profile of users to try and target both search results, which is the entire reason they exist, and and advertising to that user. So that's not, I, I'm not taking a hard line, like this is really bad, Google is bad stance. But I do think it's it's a personal choice that you, as a user, you know, it's good to be aware of and say, okay, well, this is the choice I've made. I do appreciate the fact that it's giving me adverts that target my interests. And I know that in order to do that, obviously it has to maintain some sort of history and keep some sort of track of the things that I've searched for and the sites that I've visited. Mm. And I'm okay with that. You know, that is, that is a, a perfectly reasonable and not wrong or incorrect or anything like that choice. Mm. Even this DuckDuckGo thing is not me taking a kind of hard stance. It's just, well, I haven't had a, I haven't used it for a while. Last time I used it, I found it was kind of unusably bad. Mm. So I stopped. And, you know, it's been a while. It's good to reevaluate every now and then and, and try something different. So that's kind of the basis on which I'm doing this. Mm. Yeah, I understand, you know, especially for myself, because I'm often looking for, you know, when you work with uh, sound gear, we often use plugins, which is basically software. And it is quite a hard thing to find new plugins. You know, there are uh, places you can go. There are uh, forums, the discussion forums, like a PHP discussion forum, especially uh, there are two main ones called Gear Sluts and KVR. Mm. Uh, both of these ones are sort of the the main repository for information about new audio wear and new plugins that are being released. Often I find that, uh, or I used to find before Opera came built in with an ad blocker, that um, Google's advertisements would show me, obviously because I'm often searching for them, it would show me advertisements from plugin companies. You know, here is our new synthesizer called this or our new reverb plugin called that or whatever. Right. And because it was all very targeted, you know, yeah, I used to find that quite useful. I also, on the other side, I recently bought a very, very nice new wallet, a one-piece leather wallet. And because I had searched for a wallet for several months before that, <laughs> it's not a great feeling seeing all of these advertisement for wallets, even though you've just bought one, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, that's that seems to be a perennial problem at the moment that, like, it always seems to be the thing that you've just bought that you are least likely to want to buy right. because you've just bought one right. that comes up all over the place. Right. So I, I might uh, give DuckDuckGo another try. Do you find that the quality of results is pretty good? It's a lot better than it used to be. It's not as good as Google. I think that's 
a fair thing to say just straight out. I find that I have to, you know, with, with Google, we've become accustomed now to having the feeling that if you have to click through to the second page of search results, mm. then the thing you were searching for is basically unknowable. Right. Um, and I think with DuckDuckGo, that's, that's not true. Like you often have to scroll down quite a way to find the result that you want. Right. And occasionally if I'm looking and I get frustrated, I can't find it or whatever, I go to Google mm. and that's perfectly fine because I haven't blocked Google or anything like that. It's still at google.com. I've just changed the default search engine in my browser so that when I first look something up, I, it searches in DuckDuckGo. If I then decide, oh, I can't find this and I can't be bothered, I'm just going to look at Google, I can just go to google.com and search for it. So I haven't really lost anything in that respect. Mm. Interesting. So an interesting thing that this brought up with all this question of privacy and all that, because another company that often gets you know, accused of privacy-related problems is Facebook. Mm. And Facebook is, is another one that I've toyed with giving up multiple times, but I, I get too much value from it really because you know I have so many friends and family scattered all over the place that right. it's a nice thing to be in touch with them through Facebook. But Facebook is one of these companies that you very often hear the mantra spoken about a lot of companies and Facebook in particular, which is that if it's free, then you are not the consumer, you are the product, mm. right? Have you heard that before? That is a commonly repeated phrase, right? If you're not paying for the product, then that's because you're not the customer of the product. You are the product right. and some advertiser is paying for it or somebody else is paying for it, right? Right. And I've always sort of kind of gone along with this in Facebook's case, but I was having a, a conversation with a friend of the show, Tema, who has written in before, and he gave me a sort of new perspective on this idea, which I'd never, I'd never really thought of it this way before, and I was interested to hear what you thought of it, which is that he said that he used to think like that, but he's come to a new idea about Facebook in particular and the way that they operate, which is that Facebook is actually running two businesses simultaneously. It's running a business uh, selling an actual software product, the Facebook website, right. to users on a barter basis. So instead of selling it for money, users are bartering away their data to use this software product. Mm. And then as a separate business to that, with this data that they've accumulated, which individually is worth very little to the individual users, mm. but which in aggregate is worth a lot to advertisers, they then sell that data to advertisers and and get money in return. Mm. So rather than treat it as a direct sort of antagonistic relationship where like, oh no, actually all they care about is the advertisers and the users are just the product. This gives them a little bit more credit and says, well, actually the users are genuine customers, but the currency that they're using to pay for the software is their own personal data. Mm. So what do you think of that as an idea? That's quite fascinating, actually. I don't know that I could respond so quickly to that. I'd have to actually think about it more deeply. But I, just at face value, it sounds... It sound, from, from the one hand, it sounds kind of sick. 
<laughs> that a company would basically it gives you its service in exchange for your data and information about you and the things that you're interested in the things that you search and the thing that you click and the, that you like and all that kind of stuff mm. you know you, you'd kind of think well wow if, that, if that's the currency that i'm paying for this service with i want to be told that well you know, <laughs> welcome to facebook here's where you log in by the way facebook is free but in exchange for this wonderful service that we uh, we continue to improve and keep reliable for you, we request that you give us all of your personal details. Right. <laughs> like if you think about it that well, way. Well, not, not like all of your personal details, but uh, just anything that happens while you're on the site or anywhere on the internet that uses the Facebook page, <laughs> right. which is almost everywhere on the internet. Right. So if you think of it that way, it doesn't sound great. However... You know, I think um, Temer's uh, evaluation is it's actually very accurate, be- accurate because um, it's true. I mean, that's basically how it works. You know, you click on stuff, you like stuff, uh, you look at stuff, and that all creates a profile about you, which they sell to advertisers, and that's how they make their money. Yeah. Well, so here's what I, th- I have the advantage over you and that I've had time to think about this since talking to him about it. But I think you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head when you talk about users knowing that that is how they're paying for the service. Right. I think that is what differentiates the notion of users bartering their data Mm. for a service from the opposing notion, which is the one that, you know, you hear much more commonly that I've always just taken for granted as, as truth without really considering too deeply, which is that users are just being taken advantage of mm. that they are just product and they are just a, a source to be mined for data which is then sold to advertisers right, right? right i think the key in if you want to make the argument that the transaction between users and facebook is a legitimate barter-based transaction the key is are users aware that that is the choice that they're making right And Facebook has been sort of trying to improve on those grounds. Like every now and then when I log into Facebook, I get a big alert and it is, you know, it takes up on my iPhone, it takes up a substantial proportion of the screen at the top Mm. saying, click here to confirm your default, you, you know, your privacy defaults. Right. Some of your posts may be viewable worldwide to people who are not logged into facebook or aren't your friends or whatever Mm. some of your posts are restricted to only being viewable by your friends and here's how you can sort of change those settings and here's our privacy policy and make sure you read it and understand it and things like that they are starting to try and show that to users and increase that awareness to some extent apart from the fact that obviously whenever anybody signs up they do get shown the terms and conditions. Mm. And those terms and conditions do tell you all the things that you just said, well, you'd hope they'd tell me. Yeah, but... The fact that nobody reads them is, you know... Yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the tricky part. Because really, if it was top priority for the onboarding process to show to the uh, newcomer, this is the reason that we're collecting the data about you. And this is what we're going to do with that data. And it's not only going to be on Facebook.com, it's going to be in these other places too. Right. And this is why we're doing it. Like if that was top priority to communicate it, uh, communicate that to the newcomer, 
then you would hope that it would be presented in that way. However, you know, it is more of a case of you see this really, really long document full of all this legalese that you just can't even be bothered reading because it's so complicated. And you just sort of think, yeah, whatever. I just want to get on with this, you know. Uh, right. And so you click the and accept. And it is, it is presented to you as a free product. Right. Like, I think th- there's an interesting argument that can be made both ways. Because I think if you ask the average user of Facebook, they would say, oh, Facebook is just free, isn't it? It's just a website and it's free and I just log on it. Mm. In that sense, they don't think of themselves as being party to some sort of database transaction, as Tema suggests. Right. But on the other hand, if you ask the average user of Facebook about whether they're being tracked, Mm. I think there is a reasonable amount of awareness of that. I think the majority of people are to some extent aware that Facebook is doing some sort of tracking on what they're doing. Yeah. And just doesn't care very much. Now, they may not be aware to what extent that tracking takes place. They may not realize that it happens even when they're on totally different sites because that site happens to have a Facebook like button on it. Right. Or they may not be aware that as you scroll up through your Facebook timeline, Facebook tracks when you stop scrolling Mm. and what's on the screen when you stop scrolling and what things you just scroll past. Right. So there's, there's some quite sort of insidious tracking that you may not think about. Right. But most people are aware that some sort of tracking is taking place and that data about them is being used to direct adverts to them in, in some sense or another. Yeah. So in that sense, it's not like the wool is being totally pulled over their eyes. It's interesting, though. If I was just imagining an analogy of what Timur is suggesting. If you imagine a shop that has a sign above the door, let's say there's two shops and we'll, we'll have two different mm. two different versions of them to see how they feel different from a consumer's point of view. Okay. One of them above the door of the shop, it says in plain, clear language, it says entering this shop will result in your bank account being tapped into and deducted by a certain amounts of money at certain points in time. So you walk into the shop and the things that you do, your bank balance starts to decrease because you're paying for something. Okay. The other shop says, welcome to our shop. It's free to enter our shop. Here are our terms and policies. We value your privacy. Uh, We value your bank balance. Here are our terms and policies in this manual that's sitting at the door. You can feel free, to, feel free to flip through it if you want, uh, but please come in. Well, actually, they say you must you must read it and sign Oh, that's right. Yeah, you have to read it and sign it. And let's say that it's like, you know, 40 pages of small print. Right. You have to, and nobody's you have to, checking whether you're reading and signing it, but right. the sign does say that you must and, read it and sign it. And the, the, the main signage on the shop just says free to enter. And uh, you have to sign sign this policy. And in the policy... In this manual, if you actually read it, it will say your bank balance uh, is going to be tapped into, and your you money. Well, I'm not sure that's a fair. (laughs) I don't think that is a reasonable analogy because I I can see where you're coming from, but the sign that says "free to enter" directly contradicts the terms and conditions that say it costs money. It costs money to be in here, which I guess is subtly different from free to enter, but never mind that. Right. I think that the distinction is that with with Facebook, people know it costs no money, and that's what they mean by free to use. Right. And people are also aware 
that their data is being collected in some sense or another. And they don't... This is where I think we get into a very subtle point, but it may... I, I think it's key to the sort of distinction as to whether this is a, a barter-based transaction or not, which is they may not consider that their data being taken in return for their continued use of the site is a transaction at all. Mm. They may see these as unrelated things, right? I am using this site for free, right? and I know that my data is being tracked, and I don't care, right? Right. Now, if they don't consider it to be a transaction, then is it one? Can you consider, can you, is this question of, well, it's just, it's a barter-based transaction on the one end, and then there's another business which is selling that data. Is that allowable to use that as a sort of economic model for what's happening in the pure sense, even absent the awareness that this is what's happening or the... um, acceptance of that as as the idea by the users Mm. i'm i'm not sure i know the answer but it's an interesting question like is are we describing a thing and thus the way that we choose to describe it anything goes so long as the model fits right or is it only can you only really call it that if the users are voluntarily entering the transaction on that basis and treating it as a transaction right and it's a difficult question to answer i'm not sure not sure where I stand, but it's certainly a, a really interesting sort of new viewpoint on the whole privacy, Facebook, uh, to some lesser extent. Well, maybe not lesser extent. To maybe Google is exactly the same. Like all these services that collect your data and then mm. use it to direct advertising to you in the less bad case, or directly sell it to advertisers to use for their own purposes in the much worse case. Um, mm. That notion of you are not the customer you are the product is a very easy thing to repeat and a a very easy way to think about it and i'm not necessarily saying it's it's wrong or it's right but this idea of a dual transaction with one barter-based transaction of your data for software and a later transaction between the the company and some advertising company or whatever for money Mm -hmm. It's just a, a very new model that I'd, I'd never encountered before and I thought was really interesting. Mm. So, it, you know, and it makes you think. So if, if anybody listening has any opinion on this, I think this whole thing is fascinating and I don't have any answers. So please do jump into the Reddit and leave some comments and, and tell us what you think because yeah. I'm open to sort of new, either some new model that I haven't considered or some way to differentiate the truth of these two models and say, well, you know, if, if this is true then it must be the barter model. Or if this is false, then it can't be the you know, you're the product model or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd also be interested to know what people would think about Facebook if when you went to sign up, it said exactly as Tema described. This is a free service, but in order to keep it free, we collect information about you and we sell that to advertisers. Right. If it actually clearly stated that by using our product, you are selling us Oh, well, we are taking from you data which we're using to make a profit. Right. I mean, you could imagine they might have a a page, uh, a sort of like, how does, in the FAQ, how does Facebook make its money? And they've got some cute little cartoons and it's like, well, first there's this barter transaction. <laughs> it's got these little customers handing over their data and then yeah. them getting to use the thing. And, you know, I think you could explain that in an appealing sounding way. I think if that's a, a thing that you wanted to do, right. I think it would be a legitimate thing to do and a really interesting sort of 
there's another podcast that I listen to actually that I've been listening to recently called A Town FM, mm. which is another. It's it's similar to us. They started at around the same time as us, and they were inspired as I was by Hello Internet, which is sort of the the not the birth, but it's set a precedent for a lot of these sort of just two people having a conversation. The podcasts. gold standard, Danny. The gold standard. Right. So this one, A Town FM. You know, it's. Give it a listen if you if you haven't already. It's I've been enjoying listening to. I've been listening to the last three or four episodes. Uh, one of the guys on that uh, show is studying marketing, and he's I think he's at university doing some sort of marketing course. And I think this would be a fascinating project to do as kind of a case study of if we wanted to very explicitly give the users the option of or or rather explain to the users the way this new uh, sort of internet age business model works in a way that is extremely honest but also very appealing and trying to decide how we're going to do that and how we're going to explain it and maybe using this barter model of temas or or maybe some other model that you can devise and you know making it all nice layout and nice design and, and nice cartoons and all that to make it appealing but never lying or never trying to mislead people and giving them the facts in a way that is approachable and appealing and makes them understand the issue and make a positive decision to go through with it. I think that would be a fascinating case study if you were sort of in that field or studying that sort of subject. Mm, For sure, it would probably involve uh, video with acoustic guitars or or a piano in the background and... uh, (laughs) Smiley looking people on a sunny day. Uh, if it's a video, I won't watch it. I can't be asked. It's got to be. It's, it's got to be text. Cartoons are good. It's got to be clear, simple, easy to read, right. and but but make you want to do it. That's that's. Yeah, I think if there's if there's anybody sort of doing either marketing or maybe they're sort of just getting into web design or graphic design or something like that, I think that'd be a fascinating project, and I'd love to see somebody you know have a good go at. at and making that a reality. Yeah, as long as it's got acoustic guitars in there. Nah. Get out. Get in the sea. Shut up. <laughs>